Uh, we're in a series right now called Rest. Um, if you have a Bible, I guess I would say open it to Hebrews chapter 4, because that's where we're actually going to start this morning, but we're gonna, it's going to be a second before we get there. So um, we have been talking in this series about rest, and uh, we're actually extending our series one week because we're all just so lazy that we're like, let's just keep talking about rest, and we're going to take the chairs out, we're just going to put a bunch of cushions on the ground, and we can all lay around, and we'll have, no, we're not, that would be totally creepy and weird, but we are going to continue our series. This week, we're going to talk about one aspect of rest. We wanted to really be comprehensive about how we talk about it, because it's not that often that we talk about the idea of Sabbath and rest, and next week, we're going to end our series by talking about rest from religion. Um, I want to tell you guys a story first. So when we, um, when we brought our son Tegan home, Tegan is from Ethiopia, and we brought him home when he was 15 months old. And we went to Ethiopia twice. We went to, uh, to meet him, and, uh, and that was super fun. And um, it's kind of bittersweet because you get to hang out with them for the day, and then you, like, leave, you know? And then you come back the next day, and you hang out with them, and you leave. So you're like, I just want to take this guy home, you know? But you can't. Then we had to go back to the States for like a month while a bunch of paperwork got finished. And then you go back and you actually bring him home. So we went the second time. Ellie and I went. Grandparents went. It was this big, fun thing. And again, you spend like a week seeing them. You got to go do things, go to court and stuff. But you always have to leave them at the transition home where, they, where he lives. And we just wanted to bring him home. And so finally, the day before we flew out of the country, we got to bring him home. So we bring him home and we, uh, we bring him to this guest house that we're staying at. And uh, he spent the night there with us, and then the next day, we flew out. Uh, our first flight was from Ethiopia to Dubai. It was a four-and-a-half-hour flight. It left at 4.30 in the afternoon, and so we, being experienced parents, at this point, we were very experienced. We had him for a night. We were like, well, what would obviously make the most sense would be to not give him a nap, because if you give him a nap, then he won't be tired, and then he'll just be up the whole time. But if we don't give him a nap, then he'll be tired, and then when we put a tired baby on a plane, he'll obviously just fall asleep because that's what adults do. And if you know anything about kids, they do all the things that adults do, and they're very predictable in that way. So we took him on the plane, and at 4.30, when we took off, he started to lose his mind and spent the next four and a half hours completely flipping out and losing his mind and crying. And it was the weirdest thing because he was so tired, and we were like you're tired. They also don't really do well with the explaining things to them. It's like, you're tired. Why don't you fall asleep? You can fall asleep. We're sitting here, fall asleep. And he didn't want to fall asleep. It got even worse when like, uh, so, oh yeah, grandparents got upgraded to first class. So they're up there with like the, you know, the big wigs. They're up there loving first class, you know, and, uh, and we're, we're in the back, you know, and uh, which is probably better because I wouldn't have wanted to ruin everyone's time in first class with a crying baby. But grandma comes back halfway through the flight and uh, she had been recording everything on this trip on her iPad, which I think she was just doing to, to annoy me because it's like you could record it on your phone or you could record it on an iPad. So imagine walking around Ethiopia for like a week and a half like, hello, hey, what's this, you know? So she comes back and I mean, one of my favorite people in the world, Ellie's mom, but you know, in this moment, it was not great. She shows up like, like we're losing our minds. He's crying. He's been crying for two and a half hours. She comes in, hello, mom and dad, how are you? How's it going? hello, Tegan, how are you? Are we having a hard time? What's going on? And we were just like, you know, get out of here. Um, 
And we're feeling really bad because we're like really self-conscious that we're clearly, we've adopted this baby from, and we're this Western couple adopting this baby. We don't know what we're doing. We're on an airplane full of people from Ethiopia. They're like, what are these people doing with this kid? You know, they don't know what they're doing. Um, and, and it turned out that like a lady sitting next to us, this really nice older Ethiopian lady, basically after hour four just grabs him and just like does this. And he just falls asleep, passes out, whatever. And she, like, sub she basically subdues him, you know. And we had to have her help us basically get him to go to sleep and take care of him. And she's like, don't worry about it. I'll take care of him. It's fine. Just, you, you know. And then does a lot of this stuff. And he falls asleep. And he's totally happy. And then we get into Dubai. And there is a hotel in the airport in Dubai. It's pretty fancy. And we had a 12-hour layover. So we go right to this hotel in the terminal. And we get into our hotel room. And he goes to sleep. And I had, like, this huge panic attack I was because we had a 19-hour flight the next morning and we were letting him sleep and I'm like well I guess we're supposed to let him sleep that seems to be a good thing we learned that lesson the hard way but this was a terrible idea what were we thinking we should have taken a boat or a container ship or something because it would have gone better than putting him on a 19-hour flight the crazy thing about this is this idea that you learn with kids that when they get too tired they can't actually rest because that doesn't make sense. You go, your body's supposed to work where you get tired enough and then you just rest. Now, kids are really good at sleeping much of the time. In fact, one of the weird dichotomies of having kids is you'll be completely overwhelmed and stressed out much of the time, but you're also now living your life with a person who seems to be able to unplug and relax better than anyone you've ever met. And you see that when they're sleeping. Like, you're, you just, you watch a kid sleep and you're like, this isn't fair. The way that this is happening. Look at you. You're just so asleep right now. I would give anything to be that asleep. And it's like they try as hard as they can to look like they're just so enjoying sleep. And, and I don't enjoy, I don't even sleep. I'm not even good at sleeping. I couldn't sleep last night. And, and, and it was like I was like rolling, tossing around in my bed. My dog wanted to sleep in my bed and he's huge. And I didn't want to, like he like, you have to drag him off. He knows, he knows, just lay there and look at you, you know, and you got to drag him off. So I didn't do that. And then my neck hurt and I was like, my mind's all racing with all these things I'm thinking about. I woke up early and I shouldn't have woken up early. I'm a tired person. I should be sleeping, but I'm not good at sleeping. How is it that I can't even sleep because of all the things going on in my life? This is one of the weird things about rest is that we think that if you get tired enough and if you don't take rest enough, that eventually you'll just have to do it. It will come upon you and you won't be able to stop it. And that's why most of us don't stop and rest proactively. Because we think, well, eventually it'll come and it'll hit me. But the truth is that we can actually get so worn out and burdened that we're not capable of really genuinely resting unless we are proactive about doing that thing. It's like giving a kid a nap. It's like sleep begetting sleep, which is one of the things you learn as a parent. That if you can stay on top of it, that you can actually truly rest and you can truly unwind, which is a huge deal. We've been talking about this series in rest, and we've been talking about the importance, according to the Bible, of taking a day even aside. Taking a day, taking time even throughout your day, but taking a day and just resting. Stopping, it says, stop everything that you're doing, the normal flow of what you're doing, the normal chaotic routine of life. Stop that routine for a day and also consecrate that day to God, which means point yourself to God. 
Now, we've been talking a lot about developing this practice, why we need it, why it's important for us, how God tells the Israelites, if you don't rest, you'll die. Like, I'll strike you down with death. That's crazy, right? Why would God tell them that? Because if they're going to be his people that represent him, then they need to be able to take a break and show the world that it's not all on them, but it's on God and that he's going to take care of them. Whereas other people might not be able to take a break from what they're doing, from the toil and the work, from depending on themselves, that they would instead depend on God. But we can take a rest and we can take a break. But if we don't focus and orient ourselves to God, if we don't consecrate that time to God, then we don't actually genuinely rest. So herein lies the problem. What if rest, something that's supposed to be focused on God, we're supposed to be able to say, let's find rest in God. What if you don't find rest in God? What if when you seek God, what if when you try to, to focus on Him, what if you try to spend time with Him, what if you earn His Word and you pray and you even come and worship, if it's not restful to you, if anything, it might feel like another thing that you ought to do, that you should do. I think if many of us are honest, this is often how we feel. We feel like it should be restful, but it's not really restful. Other things are restful, but maybe not pursuing God. But if what the Bible says is true, which is God is our creator, he made us, he made us designed for a purpose, which is to worship him and draw life from him, then that means that not finding rest in God leads us to death. But the Bible doesn't say it leads us to physical death, it leads us to spiritual death. And we talked about this in John 15, where Jesus says, I'm a vine and you're branches. If you're not connected to me, you're going to wither and die. And how much we would love it for there to be a third option there. Not the dying branch, not the, not the fruitful branch, that's fine, you know, maybe down the road one day when I've got more time. So I'm good with the middle of the road branch, right? Maybe not, not a lot of fruit, but it's alive, it's not dying, and Jesus is like, that's not how it works. Either you're disconnected from me and you're withering, or you're connected to me and you're producing much fruit. That if we aren't finding rest and life in God, that we're withering, and that we can't have true rest. So how do we do that? How do we have true rest in God himself, rather than just in taking a break and trying to cope by doing other things? Well, we have to ask that question, do I need God? Do I need him? Now, you might have no problem saying, no, I don't need him. I don't need God at all. You may be somebody who says, I need God, but when you really stop and think about it, that's just the thing that you say. You don't actually depend on him. You don't look to him for life. You certainly don't look to him for rest. And there's signs of what this looks like in a person's life. For many of us, living life, growing up, getting older, is kind of like slowly being worn out and worn down. That you start out filled with hope and innocence and joy and love and all these great things, and then the longer that you live, you get worn out again and again and again over things that happen. That you begin to see your relationships, even your very work, the things that you do, begin to feel more like work and more like toil and more difficult. You see distance growing. You think a marriage would naturally grow stronger and two people would grow closer, and yet they don't. It seems like the nat natural, the natural uh, direction of things, the natural trajectory of a marriage of a relationship with a friend, of people in your family, is to actually, it seems, grow apart over time without a lot of work. 
that, that, that the job, the very thing that you do, the thing that you're passionate about and care about, that you can't just naturally do that thing all the time, but that it begins to get more difficult. You even look at yourself and you say, am I more hopeful than I used to be? Or am I more calloused than I used to be? Am I more bitter and cynical than I used to be? But that's just part of living life. Am I more grateful than I used to be? Or do I expect that as I've gotten older and as I've worked more and I've done more in life that I deserve more and things ought to be different for me now than they were before? Is your life characterized by like the kind of gratefulness that maybe at some point you might have felt? Are you more humble the longer you live, the older you get? Humility isn't just thinking, um, thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. Am I more humble, or am I more proud? Am I more impressed with myself and the things that, that I do and that I've learned over time the longer that I live? Do I want more people in my life, or do I want less people in my life? We'll just say that. The older I get, the longer I live, do I want more people <laughs> More relationships, more friendships, more connections. Do I want to keep reaching out and trying? Or do I want to just focus in, hone down, and just kind of drown out the rest of the crowd and everybody else? Because it's too exhausting. It's too much work. It's, it's, it's too difficult for me. Do I say, God, I want you to use me? Or do I say, God, listen, I want a break and I want something from you? These are the signs of a person being worn down. And much of us associate that as just being a normal part of life. The longer I live, the more that happens to me, the more I'm just going to get worn down. But that isn't the way the Bible describes life is supposed to work for a person who follows Jesus. That a person who follows Jesus, the longer they do it, actually find themselves developing fruit of the Spirit. They find themselves actually feeling better and more filled with life and more rested the longer that they live. If you're an old person, you probably see this in your peers. You see some people who are super bitter and calloused, and then you see some people who are more hopeful and grateful and humble than they ever were before. And you see the difference between living a life that is, that is filled with the kind of rest and life that's drawn from God and what that produces, and then you see a life that slowly starts to decay and wither away, taper off. The very act of being with God is life-giving to us. The Bible tells us that. That communing with God, that communion with God gives us life. And so if we can do that, then we will find rest. We talked about a couple weeks ago that even though God, we think of God as like being up here, he's up above us and he sees everything, he knows everything that goes on, you know, then that means that we don't really have to try or think or do anything in order to be in his presence, we can just kind of live our lives and he'll be there, he'll be a part of it. But the way the Bible describes our relationship with God is that we have to be focused on him. We have to look at him. We have to fix our gaze on him. That if we sin, what do we do? We repent, which means turn back to God. It doesn't just mean turn away from sin. It means turn back to God. The idea is that the, the definition of sin is turning away from God, not just doing bad things. Which means we can be turned towards him or turned away from him. And real communion with God is being turned towards, turned towards him and finding life in him. And what that ultimately looks like, real rest, is to be drawing life and rest from God himself. Which for many of us, like I said, 
isn't a true statement. It isn't a true thing. We, we just simply were like, that's not where I would find rest. I find rest in a lot of other things as I cope in a lot of other things. We have a tendency to run really hard and then to just cope. We have a tendency to work really hard and then just cope. Come up with ways to check out and get away from it. To not deal with it, to forget, to turn it off. Some of us like turn to all kinds of different things. Some are good, some seem constructive, some are bad, some are almost always negative. But either way, it's an attempt for us to just cope with all of the stress of all the work that we do. And so there's, like I said, there's these ways that we do this. We, we talk about the Bible, which is God's word, which he's alive and active in, it tells us. And, and that that's one of the primary ways that we commune with him, that we talk to God, that we actually pray and talk to God. Why don't most people experience like profound, life-changing prayer lives? Because most people don't pray like at all. I mean, really, like most, most Christians, most people who would even say like, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, when they're honest, would be like, I don't pray. I rarely pray. When I do, other people are praying. I'm just listening to them. Um, and we worship. We actually worship. We worship because the Bible tells us to. We worship because it's life-giving. We worship because there's rest in it, because of who God is. And yet most would admit, honestly, that most worship, most times of worship, most opportunities of worship, worship are not truly worshipful. And we can blame it on the music, we can blame it on the people, we can blame it on the week that we've had, but the truth is, it's because of the way that we approach it most of the time, the amount of thought and effort that we put into it, because these things take work. They take work. Like anything in life that's good, like any relationship that we have, it takes work. And the real relationships, the important ones, are the ones that we work at. And this is no different. So I want to talk about those three things, about being in the Word, about prayer, about worship, because I think that we can talk about resting in God and coming to God, but if we just mention those things in the abstract and passing all the time, then we fail to kind of get to the heart of like, are any of us actually doing this? Are we going to do this? Am I going to do this? Is this a practical thing for me, or am I just going to talk about it like it's a normal part of my life when it isn't? One of the um, best passages on rest in the Bible is Hebrews 4, which you've turned to. There's a lot in Hebrews up till this point that's talked about rest. It's talked about the Israelites. It's talked about God telling his people to have rest, what happened if they didn't. And we read this starting in verse 8, or we'll start in verse 9, actually. And it's kind of a summary just of everything it's been saying in Hebrews up till this point on rest. It says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then it goes on. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. A big part of the reason that I am a believer today is this. It's not because I went to seminary and studied the word. It's not because I became a Christian at some point in high school. It's because when I look to God's word, this is true of it that it is alive, it is living and active, that it does these things. Now, you can open it up and you can read it with a skeptical mindset all the time and never come to that conclusion and say, I don't get it, I don't see it, it's not there, 
People make this up. They instill this into it. But what the Bible is saying about itself, the claim it's making about itself, is that it is a supernatural thing that is actually alive. That means that when you read a Bible, that there is something supernatural happening there. That you're not just reading words on a page, you're not just studying information, but there's something happening, there is a power within this thing. And to to actually recognize that and to acknowledge that means that it has the ability to dramatically change who you are. It's so interesting that the end of a whole passage on rest ends with this, the most powerful description, many would say, of what the Bible is in all of Scripture here in Hebrews 4. Now, this doesn't sound like a particularly appealing thing. It's a sharp, alive thing that cuts you and carves you, divides soul from spirit and heart. It, it, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Think about that statement alone. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It says you read the Bible, and if you really allow yourself to be opened up to what it says, that it will discern through not just your thoughts and your intentions, what you want to be about, what you want to live about, all the things you think should be right and could be right, but what's truly in your heart as a human being. That it has the ability to do that. And so when we, God's word has the power that when we go to it, to give us the ability to shift our focus back onto him, which is what we do when we rest. When we rest, we gain perspective. We say, I'm not just taking time off to take a break from all the exhausting stuff in life, but I'm going to take that time and I'm going to actually look at God in that time. Because I believe that in him comes a rest that comes from nothing else. Not because there's nice poetry in the Bible, not because I believe in, I believe in meditation, not because I believe in deep breathing, but because there's an actual power that comes from him that is supernatural in his word. I want to give you an example of what that looks like. Let's say that you're going to sit down, you're going to read the Bible. You open it up, you decide that you're going to go for the easy stuff, you're going to go for Jesus, teachings of Jesus, because, and I could talk about this all day, and I don't have time, and my sermon in the first service went way, way too long, big surprise, and so I won't talk about this to the extent that I could, but I will say this. The concept of the word, that word, word, okay, logos, the word, is, is, is a profoundly significant concept throughout the, the Bible, especially throughout the New Testament. That if you want to communicate something to someone, what do you use? You use a word. So John 1, 1 says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. It was with them in the beginning, that everything was created through it. That's Jesus. Jesus is the word, the logos, which means if God wants to communicate with us, he uses words to communicate, but not just words on a page. He uses the word, the logos, which is Jesus, which means if God wanted to communicate with us the best way possible, what it would look like to be someone that believes in him, pre-fall of man, pre-sin, what that looks like. He sends us something way better than a book full of words. He sends us a human being. And he says, somebody's going to live this thing out in the flesh, and you're going to see it. Jesus is the transmission of God to us. He's saying, I'm going to show you. And guess what? Some people will write about it. 
four guys are going to write about it. They're going to use lots of unnecessary detail because that's how people write. They're even going to be honest about how lame they looked during most of what was going on with Jesus and how they didn't believe half what he was saying, half the time he was saying it for a long time. And then all of those people who actually knew him and met him and lived with him, most of them would go on to die for him, not because of what they heard about him or because of things that other people had told them, but because they themselves had experienced what it looked like when God came and lived in the flesh. That's the word. So you open up the Bible and you say, okay, fine. I want to shift my gaze to God. But it's not that easy to open up the Bible all the time and to read and to be like, okay, what's this talking about? What's it supposed to mean? What am I supposed to do about this thing? So you open up to Jesus And then you go, okay, I'll read a parable because that's confusing. Jesus didn't think it was hard enough to understand him. He's going to speak in parables and riddles. The thing about a parable that's so cool is that if you don't want to understand the parable, you won't understand the parable. That's why he did it. He started talking that way because religious leaders were trying to, they were trying to basically kill him and they would use anything that he said against him. And so he speaks in parables and people who didn't want to understand just go, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. And the people who did want to understand actually thought about what he was saying and said, oh, here's what it means. And that's what we do as well, too. Parables are not that complicated to get. So I'm going to read one with you guys. Let's say we open up our Bible. If you want, you can turn with me. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's super small. I don't know why I put it up, but I will. It's going to be in Matthew chapter 18. I want to read a parable with you. I want, to show, I want to walk through what this is like to do this, to just say, okay, fine, we're going to focus on God. We're going to open up his word. We're going to be like, how does this give me some kind of perspective? How do I find rest in this thing? So the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be, the serp- to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Having patience, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So it's not uncommon to sit down to say, I'm going to look at what God's word says about something. You go look at it and you say, okay, so uh, forgiveness. Much of the time that we stop and we go to God's word, we're going to God's word in situations of like, I'm upset with someone. I've been wrong. Something bad has happened to me. I'm tired of this. I've had a bad week. Whatever it is that we're dealing with, this is a good one. Forgiveness. Yes, this is a nice thing to think about. In fact, much of us will be coming to God in prayer like, God, somebody's driving me crazy. What am I supposed to do? 
So we read this parable, and this parable talks about a lot of different things. It talks about hypocrisy, what it's like for a person to hold other people to a standard that they themselves can't live by and won't live by. This is one of the things that Jesus spoke against the most. Why? Because religious people are really hypocritical. Why? Because religious people are all about right and wrong. And they're really good at expecting it of other people and making excuses for themselves, right? Well, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm trying for the right reasons. I'm doing other things that are good. And so, you know, I don't necessarily have to, uh, you know, I'm, it makes sense what's going on with me and what I'm wrestling with. They should be doing a better job. We look at people. We look at the world. We look at institutions. We look at groups. We look at enemies. We look wherever we look and we say, they ought to be living this way and I'm upset they're not and doing these things and I'm upset that they're not when it's the very same things that we ourselves would not actually adhere to and live by but we proclaim them. We say we're living by them. We say we're doing them, and we don't. There's hypocrisy here, and we read it, and we find, we find freedom knowing that it is not our place to call other people and expect other people and call them in on their debts to these things when it's the very thing that we ourselves can't do. It's about forgiveness. It's about forgiving somebody. How often is a Christian supposed to forgive? all the time, again and again and again. Now, these are legitimate debts that are owed. These are not misunderstandings. These are not confusing things that have happened. This isn't a debatable situation. Someone owes someone something else, and they have just completely ignored the debt. Forgiveness. Let's just pretend forgiveness is this. Someone wronged you, and they're not sorry, and they don't deserve your forgiveness, and they're probably even going to do it again. Forgive them. That's what? Okay, fine. How often should I forgive them? Now, most people are really good at forgiving one time and then telling everyone about it, right? Let me, let me give a testimony or tell you a story about the time I forgave someone. It was really hard. It was really difficult. God taught me a lot through it. And, you know, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to write a book now and maybe do a podcast or something, right? Uh, we keep forgiving and keep forgiving and keep forgiving people. Forgive again and again and again because people will continue to wrong you. And that is the most Christian thing that you can do. And so we stop and we rest and we look at God's word and we say, what does it tell me? What is my perspective supposed to truly be? The most profound thing that we can get from this, though, is this. And it's from every single thing that Jesus teaches. And it's from most of what's in scripture. We've seen it throughout Exodus even. And Exodus can feel so far away from the teachings of Jesus in the Bible, just spatially speaking. We read this. Who are we? Who am I? If I'm a follower of Jesus, here's who I am. I'm a guy who's been forgiven and doesn't deserve to be forgiven. I am someone who is deeply indebted and has been forgiven. And as a result of that, I can first of all be very grateful. I can be profoundly grateful when I come away from any time with God because I recognize that I don't deserve what I have. I don't deserve the things that God has given me, the freedom that he's given me, the life that he's given me. And yet I have it anyway. And that profound gratefulness ought to shape the way that I treat everyone else and the way that I live every situation in my life. I ought to be a grateful person. Am I a grateful person? Much of the time, no. Where do my dissatisfactions and frustrations and irritations and my exhaustion come from? They come from the things I expect, the things that are owed to me, things that the world owes to me, that people owe to me, that God owes to me. Rather than recognizing, I have been forgiven. 
And if that changes me, then what kind of a person am I moving forward? Why do Christians forgive? Not because God tells us to and we feel guilty not to. It's because we've been forgiven. That's why we forgive. We look at this. We read this. A parable about a guy that owes other people money that took place thousands of years ago. It didn't even really take place. Jesus just told the parable as a story to illustrate something thousands of years ago. Why in the world would I look to this to find rest? Because of what it tells me what it tells me that is true. Do you know what the Bible says? Well, I'll just say this. Do you know what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world is that everyone thinks that what's wrong with the world is something other than them. The Bible says this. The Bible says, here's what's wrong with the world. You. That's it. That's it. What's wrong with the world? You're wrong with the world. Ouch. But it's true. You open it, you read it, It says the problem with the world is the heart of man. Not the heart of that man or that man, but this one right here, the one reading these words. And so what does that mean? I mean, could you even imagine if the world was actually filled with people who approached everything with the attitude of what is wrong with the world is what's going on in my own heart. And so that is the thing that I will look to and I will seek to change that I will not continually point to everyone else and everything else and say, if only that can change and that can get in line and that can go back to the way it used to be when things were so great, where everyone's hearts were perfect, that we recognize, and this is what I mean by perspective, and this is what brings us rest, is because we don't have to freak out about everything all the time, because we know exactly why things are the way they are and why they're happening the way they are and because it's the way they've always happened. It's because of humanity. It's because of the way that we operate. And people who don't believe anything about God believe this too. They believe. There are many people who believe that the fundamental flaw is just simply at the core of what a human being and human nature is. That we are going to mess ourselves up all the time. Not a certain group of people are going to mess themselves up, but each individual person is going to want to mess themselves up. We look to God's word and we also look to prayer. And the reason why prayer is much of the time not Uh, not restful for us and life-giving to us is simply because we lack familiarity. The only relationships that really mean anything to us are the ones that we're familiar, the people that we're truly familiar with, right? Something happens in your life that's really big, whether it's good or bad, who will you go to? Will you go to someone you haven't talked to in a year? Will you go to someone you haven't talked to in six months? You will go to the person you talked to yesterday or today. Those people who are the most familiar to us are the people that mean the most to us. This is how relationships work. And the difficulty that we have is that we we know that we should have familiarity with God. Most of us, many of us don't. And so then we talk about it and we go, I know, I need to, I should, I ought to. But he's always in the abstract and always far away because we don't actually spend the time with him to develop that. Any reading that you do on prayer, on time in the Word, and on worship will tell you that all of these things take work. And we go, God wouldn't want that. He wouldn't want me to talk to Him if I wasn't really feeling it, right? If it wasn't really easy. I mean, that's only how every relationship works in life, right? They only work because we're willing to put time into them when it's not easy and when it's not convenient, And shallow relationships exist in this world because they are the relationships we have that are convenient. 
And that's all they are, and that's all they'll ever be. Now, this is really hard in today's day and age because apart from being kind of an instant gratification sort of society because sort of everything in convenience has made it possible for us to live that way, we also live in like an instant gratification communication society. I can reach out to literally any person in my life in a moment with my phone. And sometimes that's a really bad thing because if you don't keep a close track on your address book and you don't get out people that you don't want to really talk to anymore or like old people you haven't talked to in like a long time, you will accidentally send a text message one day to somebody you haven't talked to in 10 years and then be like, well, this is awkward. Now we're going to talk about something. And has anybody here ever done that? Am I the only one who's done that where you try to send a message to somebody and then you realize it's to somebody that you haven't talked to in 10 years and you're like, hey, anyway, how are things? That's cool. Okay. How is this happening to me right now because of the world that we live in? Because I can literally reach out to any person in a moment and instantly get some kind of a feedback from them. And what makes it difficult to actually even wrap our minds around the idea of prayer is that prayer doesn't work that way. Is that prayer is something that's cultivated like a real relationship with a person. We would love to believe that prayer works like texting works, like emails work, where you just send something and then you get something back right away. Super easy, super concise, but it doesn't operate that way because real relationships don't operate that way. And so it's hard for many of us. We we struggle to find rest in it. But again and again and again, what we see, and this is where we talked about how rest helps us in struggle and in trial, even in tragedy. Because when the sky starts to fall and you decide you're going to turn to God at that point because that's how you deal with that, but you have no familiarity with this God, you have no relationship with this God, then that will be a very painful and difficult process for you. You will not find comfort there. You will not find closeness there. You won't. You'll try to make that happen. You'll try to feel that. But ours is not a God that we only come to to comfort us. He is not a salve just to put in our wounds. He is not a coping mechanism. And many of us, he is nothing but that. He is a coping mechanism for when things get a certain way. And that's not really the way that he operates. It's not the way that we see it operate as a follower of Jesus. Prayer gives us strength and it gives us perspective, which is so valuable. A couple times this last week, I've had people pray for me. I've had people stop and just we're talking about something and at the end of a conversation when you would normally just leave, They're like, can I pray for you or can we pray about this? And I'm like, yeah, and then we pray. And it profoundly changes the perspective that I have completely about whatever we've been talking about, about whatever we've been doing. It changes the very perspective of that thing. It reminds me that like God is actually a part of this. And I have a tendency to remove him from it constantly and just talk about him in the abstract that it gives me strength and it gives me a sense of perspective. It's like climbing to the top of a mountain and getting to look down and see much more. That's what we need to be able to do when we rest. The other thing that rest is found in is worship, actually coming before God's throne. It says in Psalm 5, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. I will enter into your house through the abundance of your steadfast love. I will bow down towards your holy temple in fear of you. This isn't fear, I'm afraid of what happens if I don't do this. This is fear, awe. 
recognizing who God is. Ultimately, we believe that God is first and foremost a king. That there is a kingdom called the kingdom of God. That he reigns and he rules in this kingdom and it is not limited to geography. It's not limited to a certain kind of people. It is limited to those who allow him to reign in their hearts. That is where the kingdom of God exists. Kingdom of God goes on forever. Kingdom of God will not go away. He is the greatest king. He is the most worthy king. And we are really lucky that we don't have kings anymore because nobody would really be that worthy of it. And it would be probably a disaster. But our king, our great king, the one that we approach and we worship, we do so because he is a king and he's such a good king. Just as people would approach a king and bow down at his throne and recognize exactly what a big deal he is, that is first and foremost what worship is. Worship is above all else, a bunch of people recognizing how big God is and just proclaiming him, proclaiming that about him and to him. It is first and foremost done because no matter how I feel, no matter what I think or what's going on, he is who he is and he deserves it. That's the number one reason why we worship. And we find rest in that. We find rest in knowing that is true of him. The other reason that we worship is because, again, apart from perspective, this is who God is, it gives us strength. One of the challenges of any worship leader, of any worship pastor, is to find a way for us to be worshiping, both focusing on what it means for us to know God, but also simply just who God is and what he is. And when worship becomes entirely about me and how I feel and what God's done for me in my life and how I need him, then worship becomes completely self-absorbed. But when worship is only about how big God is and how great God is, then it becomes detached from me and who I am. And so when we worship, we worship him in his righteousness. We ask him to lead us in his righteousness. And that it is out of awe and fear of him that we approach him. We don't run from him in fear and awe. We approach him in fear and in awe. If the Bible tells us to live a certain way, and that to do so leads to life, then we know that if we don't experience life and we say that we're following him, pursuing him, that that might mean that we're not actually resting the way he calls us to because that's what's meant to give us life. I do a lot of work around my house um, and I've been doing a lot of work around my yard. And I'm, I'm smart, so I bought a lot of tools because I'm also lazy. So when I'm out there working on my yard, I'm not like scrubbing a driveway with a brush and some soap on my hands and knees. I'm using a power washer because of course I bought a power washer because I live in the Pacific Northwest and you need one all the time. And I power wash stuff and it's easy. I power wash my kids. It's easy. <laughs> the, difference, it's the difference in six feet on a power washer is a really big deal, okay? It is, like a, it is like a blade of water and a fine mist of fun, okay? And so I just stay six feet away. They're fine, okay? But, but I power wash stuff. I'm not scrubbing it with my hands. I don't cut my grass with little scissors and trimmers. I have a, I have a lawnmower to cut my grass. And so I like cutting my grass. I trim one of the 800 million arbovitas around my house with some hedge trimmers that are motorized. I don't use clippers to trim them. 
Now, I'll tell you one thing. Of all the work that I've done in my yard, there's these three plants that I bought that I have to plant, and they've been sitting there in pots for three weeks, for two weeks. And do you know why they've been sitting there? Because they haven't invented a way for me to easily dig holes to put these plants in. I just have a shovel. I mean, they have invented a way, but I didn't want to buy it. And so I look at the plants, and I look at the shovel, and I go, nope, not today. And I just water them. And I'm like, I hope it's okay. It's been a couple weeks. I'm sure they'll be fine. We'll try to do it maybe next week. I don't want to do it. Why? Because I've found that there are way better, more effective, smarter ways to do it. The, like God tells us throughout his word, like, like here is what you do and here is how you live. But then he also tells us, here's how I'm going to empower you to do that. And it will not be an exhausting, draining thing that causes you to callous over time and grow hopeless over time and grow cynical over time and grow weary over time. I'm calling you to do things, but to do them in a way that should fill you with life and cause you to develop the fruit of the Spirit which means he's empowered us to do that. But we will not know that empowerment and we will not know that rest if we do not seek him for rest. So if all we ever do is carve out time and go do things that help us cope with the stress of life that aren't God, we will still not really genuinely receive rest to do the things he's called us to do. Is it no surprise then that the world is filled with people who say they know God and are religious, but are bitter and calloused and exhausted and weary and have given up on the world. It's not a surprise because many don't know what real rest looks like because they don't see that in God. They look in other, in other places for it. One of the things we've also been talking about over the last couple of weeks in this series is that we as a church are taking a rest, right? We've talked about the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament where every seven years they would take a break from things in a very big way. They would release people from slavery, and they would, people would have the option if they want to remain there in a household as a slave and a servant, or if they want to be free, they could be. They would forgive uh, the payment of debt. You could have a year off of paying anything on your debt. They would let all the land grow fallow, all the fields, and they would just stop growing stuff, and it would just kind of grow naturally, which wasn't actually very good for fields if you just let that happen to every single field in your nation. They would, uh, they would give back land to people that they had bought. No, that was every 49 years. Because every, every seven of those, every seven of the seven-year periods, every 49 years, they would give back all the land that, that had been bought, that had been traded, and had been passed on to families. They would give it back to the original owners. And they would also release people from slavery. And they would forgive debt permanently. They wouldn't just let you not pay on it. They would forgive the debt permanently. And they would let the grand land grow and they would let all the crops grow and all the people that had no food and had no way of getting food and were homeless and were poor and hungry, they could come and they could eat for a year from these fields. Now, the reason they did this was because it was a form of rest, but also because of what it said about this community, this society of people. Because debt and slavery, aka manual labor at the time, and agriculture and land management and use and sale and growth were all things that civilization, society is built on. And the Israelites were to be the one group of people who didn't need to build their society just on these things. And you could look at every other group of people and say, why did they grow big? Why did they get good? Why are they okay? Why are they where they are? Well, because they got together, they built a society and they figured out how to make it work like everybody else. 
But what about these people who take a break from this thing and who let everything fall apart for every seven years for their society for the sake of other people? Because these slaves are humans. Because this, because this, this agriculture isn't the only thing that they depend on, but it's the God himself who provides through that thing. That their hope is not in all of these things, but their hope is in the God who provides ways to do these things. And if you don't take a rest, you don't take a break, then you don't know that. And we've been talking about how we as a church are taking a break this year from a lot of the things that we do. A lot of the things that have been productive and, 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 and profitable and that have led to great things and that have even programs at our church that have been really successful and good in a lot of ways. But we recognize that our hope is not in those things. Our hope is in God himself. And it is easy, it turns out, to let our hope be in things that we have enjoyed and that we have done and that we have invested in and that are historic. And as a result of that thing, that if we don't hold them loosely, then we can say our hope isn't in them, but we cannot really mean that and we cannot really know that. The Israelites' hope was in God himself. He could pick them up and move them somewhere else and they would still be provided for because of who God was. In the very same way, our hope is in God himself. It is not in, it is not in the building that we have. It is not in the money that we have. It is not in the savings account that we have. It's not in the ministry houses that we have. It's not in the programs that we do. It's not in the things that we run. It is in God himself. And it will always be in God himself. And so we rest knowing that we can truly rest because we will be okay and he will continue to move. Because who reaches the lost? He does. Who disciples the undiscipled? He does. And he uses us in that process, but it's him who empowers it. That's the best advertisement for a family meeting I can give you, right? Come to the family meeting, you'll hear about everything. You can throw produce. We're going to spend some time in worship. We're going to sing a few more songs. And as we do that, some of the songs that we sing are about simply who God is. And some of the songs that we sing are about what it means for us, for God to be who he is. We're going to sing a song first called You Alone. And this song is simply about who God is how great he is, and how much it means for us that he is that God. And so as we worship, I want to challenge you to just uh, try to let yourself and your life and your things and your issues fade into the background for this first song that we sing. And think about who God is, what you know is true of God, what he has shown you is true of himself, and, and worship him for that and that alone. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for who you are. Um, we thank you that you have created us to find rest and life in you, and we confess to you that we often look to lots of other places for that rest and that life other than you. That we think that sheer exhaustion will lead us to rest, that we will not be able to avoid it, but that's not true, God. Our prayer is that you would help us to do the hard work of cultivating a relationship with you of being attached to the vine, of being in your word, of talking to you and hearing from you, of worshiping you, Lord. We pray that you would uh, impress upon us how our very lives depend on those things. Not because we have to earn anything from you or, or because you want us to impress you with our hard work, but because we, we recognize that like any relationship, how can we truly be close to you if we don't spend time with you, Lord? God, we worship you because you're so good and you're so big and you're who you are. And it's in your name we pray, amen. God, you are who we want and what we want. 
we confess to you that much of the time that's not the case, that we want other things but you. Lord, we know that rest cannot be found unless it is found in you, that life cannot be found unless it is found in you, and that you indeed are a firm foundation, Lord. Much of our fear, much of our stress, much of our strain comes from the things that we put our hope and our trust in that are not you, Lord. And so our prayer is that not only would we take time aside to rest, but that we would look towards you in that time. And we especially pray for those who have a really hard time doing that, who struggle to sit with you, to look into your word, to talk with you, and to genuinely worship you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the patience, uh, the willingness to do it, and that you would give us glimpses of your beauty along the way to keep us going, Lord. Father, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. See you at the family meeting.